22. Today on the Movement of Color podcast, we have a very special Queen episode where we review Bohemian Rhapsody. And also, civil rights attorney Carl Williams and I discuss our rights and do a Know Your Rights training. My name is Brandon Peyton Carrillo. That's at the start. It was great, man. I went to the movies. Ooh, uh, what movie see? I saw Bohemian Rhapsody, the the Queen movie. And uh, what, what overall did you think of it? Like, well, it's a really dense movie. For it comes in at about two hours, and there's tons. It tells the story of Freddie Mercury, this um, Indian Farsi that was raised in Zanzibar, but we meet up with him in his early 20s, in like 1970, where he meets the members of his band called Smile. And how he links up with these folks, form Queen, and embarks on his own personal journey through stardom. And the story itself is kind of bookended, by the performance at Live Aid. Because those who are lifelong Queen fans like myself understand that the Live Aid performance was like their biggest moment in the in the limelight. You know, bigger than all their hits, bigger than all their tours. Um, this was what really solidified them as legends. Yeah, okay. So, uh, yeah, because I, I was wondering, because, like, uh, from what I've read about the development of this movie, which took, like, fucking years to, to like, make, like, it, it was in pre-production for, like, forever. Mm-hmm. Um, it was only very recently that, like, they actually went forward with it. Uh, but, like, that the re- the rest of the, the surviving members of Queen um, were, like, uh, because they owned the, the name Queen and all the licensing and stuff, um, they ultimately had, like, final say or what gets in, what isn't, and what you know, stays out. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, do you think that like maybe the fact that like this biopic of their dead band member, like maybe the fact that like those, like the, the rest of the rest of the band kind of has final say, do, do you think that like affects the, the story and like the way the audience sees, um, Freddie, um, how like the, 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 the audience sees the rest of the band members and all that kind of stuff. Do you think that like affects the narrative at all? Or like, or like the historical, or like, is there? Do you have any fears that like maybe there's some like historical revisionism going on with the movie? Okay, so that's a good question because I think it's a complicated. There's a complicated answer to it. I would say because of their control, they definitely direct where the narrative was going in the movie. Um, I heard 
uh, previous incarnations of this movie because before this actual movie Bohemian Rhapsody got made and they cast this Freddie Mercury, they had Sasha Baron Cohen playing Freddie Mercury. And he dropped out of the project due to creative differences. And one of the things that he did say was the narrative of the of that particular movie that he was involved in um, was one where, all right, they meet with Freddie, he dies, and then they continue on as their post-Queen career after Freddie. And Sasha Baron Cohen was like, that's fucking stupid. And if that movie was made, I would say that's fucking stupid and it sucks. Um, but the movie as is, this Bohemian Rhapsody, um, I would say they, they buffer the edges of maybe um, the shitty stuff that some of the other three band members might have done. But at the same time, they address the tensions that existed between the four band members and navigated that. Another question I was wondering was, like, do they deal with the, like, does the movie actually, actually end up dealing with the whole, like, HIV and AIDS um, epidemic and how Freddie kind of got, yeah, was ultimately killed by it? Or, like, or does it end, like, right before it? Oh, they deal with it. They definitely deal with it. Um, and I think they did it in a way that um, was really humanizing of Freddie and just the people who suffered under this uh, epidemic. Or I should say pandemic, really. It's, it was large enough. People were just dropping dead in their prime, you know. So, um, essentially, without giving too much of the movie away or any spoilers, um, while Freddie was isolated, he started to fill a lot of his time with um, drugs and sex and, you know, running with... Uh, a pretty, uh, pretty rough crowd. And um, when he catches it, they don't, they don't dwell on the fact that, and you don't get to see Freddie just wither away and die and all that kind of stuff, uh, which I don't think would have been really appropriate for the movie and the overall theme. But you see him battling it. You see him confronting his own mortality. Um, they have news footage of the epidemic. And people being taken down by it. And they also talk about the media and how the rumor mills were just kind of constantly churning about, oh, does Freddie have it? Does he have AIDS? He's going to the doctor. He's hanging out with these people. He's hanging out with these people. And we know that person has it. And kind of existing in this bubble where you're a lonely person in the outside world is trying to dig into your your privacy in context of this larger academic, epidemic, which is AIDS. So um, I thought they did a really good job of addressing that. And I'm going to kind of um, pivot off of that question and, and kind of bring up something I was really surprised in how deep they really covered it. Um, I think... In order to kind of tell that story about him contracting AIDS in kind of that environment, um, they really kind of went into um, 
the gay subculture of the late 70s, early 80s. Um, they, there are certain things that unless you were around that time or you kind of done some research on LGBTQ kind of studies type things, um, and you, they, really, they really cover it, what inspired um, Another One Bites the Dust. Because Freddie wanted to have a club banger. He's like, yeah, we wrote all these anthems and that's great. But, you know, I want a banger. And even though the song was um, written by the bass player, which makes 100% sense, why would anyone else in the band write Another One Bites the Dust besides the bass player? Um, at that time, Freddie kind of really embraced that club scene in the gay club scene and the music that was being played there. And um, Hot Space, and this is a little veering off the movie, if you haven't heard that album, really underrated. I think you should revisit it because it was the Queen disco funk album. But to get back to my original point was, I think they really dealt with LGBTQ issues in a very humanizing and respectful manner. Yeah, I was I was asking that question because, like, um, I've I met a good number of people, like older LGBTQ folks who who were alive during like when AIDS was a first was like a the fit was like a, was like barely coming up becoming a thing, and just like and and one specific, I remember one specific story from one of the one of the people who uh, well one of the women who works um, at the local LGBT center, um, and she would tell me stories of like yeah like. When it first happened, no one knew what the fuck was going on. No one knew how it was transmitted. Like, like all all they knew was like it was mostly affecting um, lesbian, gay, bi- bisexual people. Um, and like, no one and, like and, and like all, all they knew was people were dropping like flies. Like you said people were dropping like flies um, like every day. Like she she once told me like, what in one year she went to dozens of funerals in a single year, hmm. um, and just how whole like LGBTQ populations were just like, were basically gone almost overnight. Um, and it was just how horrifying it was and just how many of her own friends she like, she basically saw die in front of her. Um, it was like a really traumatic time. Um, and it's, it's, it's nice to hear that like the, the movie does kind of tackle that tastefully. Um, like the overall terror and like the, the fact that like, of just how fucking brutal AIDS, uh, HIV and AIDS uh, really are. Um, on the body, so I mean, it's 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 not it's always nice to hear that like you know the, the movie does tack like tackle that tastefully. Yeah, um, they really do. Um, I would say they don't go in depth as like say the movie The Normal Heart, which was like a Julia Roberts movie and Mark Ruffalo, where they talk about the the plague of AIDS hitting in like 1980, 81, 82 in San Francisco, but it has a similar feel where there's this disease that is eating up predominantly gay men, but and it, you don't know who has it, and there's no cure, and there is that sense of gloom and doom, um, which I think they cover really well, and it was a part of this movie. Um, one thing I will say, because, you know, we're on a POC podcast, and I think it, I would be uh, 
it'd be inappropriate for me to not to bring this up, is um, they tackle, to some degree, Freddie Mercury's POC-ness and his relationship to that. And um, at one point in the early movie, when he joins Queen, there's a scene where, all right, I'm in this band that once was called Smile. Now we're going to go by Queen. And someone in the audience was like, why do you got this Packy on stage? And because Freddie, you know, can legitimately pass for some type of European, it made me realize, like, oh, shit. That is a real part of his experience. One that he might have kind of underplayed in his own outward persona but um the fact that he was indian parsi that um and of the zoroastrian faith um i think it was a really interesting reminder and that was a part of his uh his legacy and who he was and how he wrestled with it and i think that became a really interesting plot point in the movie yeah, because like when I when I first like saw a picture of Freddie Mercury, I was like, oh, that's like a Southern European. Like he's probably Italian or something, or like maybe maybe Greek. Um, it wasn't until like and like yeah, and, and and his name was you know his stage name was Freddie Mercury. Yeah. Um, you know he, he could very like I could totally see him passing, um, in Southern Europe. Um, and it wasn't and not it's not until you like you really look into his personal history that you kind of see this kind of history uh, it's you see like oh yeah he is like oh yeah he is he is poc like oh shit i didn't even realize that until like until someone until it's again until you know you really look into it and like you're really a queens fan um and i i think that's i would not be surprised that was like a big surprise for people who went into the theater who didn't know that stuff who's like who are kind of queens fans but not like super queens fans um I, i would not be surprised if just like they were kind of eye widened. I was like, "Oh shit, yeah, this person is, you know, Farsi Indian." Oh fuck. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, if you only listen to like the greatest hits, the red one and the blue one, um, you might not know that his original name is Farouk Balsara, and he was born on the island of Zanzibar, and he's of the Zoroastrian faith. And in the movie, when they go back to Freddie's beginning is like, oh, you see him with his parents. And, you know, they're calling him Farouk. And they're teasing him at certain aspects of it. You know, talking about him going to boarding school and all his other things about his life that are very kind of intimate if you think about how private Freddie was in his outward persona. And um, I think um, it bears a discussion of just kind of like when you have that privilege of wealth, what do you do with that? And what's your what's what was your cause to fight for or whatnot? And I don't know, maybe I'm I, that's projecting my own politics on what his mission was because essentially he was a he's an artist, he's a musician, and that's what he did, and that's what he did best, and his. Um, Zoroastrian faith does come up in songs, uh, particularly Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah, to make to make it a real focus. Yeah, because it's easy just to make it like, all right, we're going to play out the hits, 
We're going to play We Will Rock You, Bohemian Rhapsody, You're My Best Friend, you know, Somebody to Love. And then, you know, they were fighting for a while and they were fighting over money and Freddie was doing a bunch of cocaine, but then they decided to, to rally again and do this one show and they were back on top. They could have just made that movie and probably still been successful and I would have been, mm, okay, cool, that was a fun movie. But they took that next level where they addressed Freddie's queerness, Freddie's POC-ness, um, some of the tensions that they had um, within the band and um, some of the social conditions that were going on in Europe at that time. So it was um, and, and the AIDS crisis on top of that. So if I had to give this movie a rating, I would give it a 4.7 out of 5. Damn, that's pretty high. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I, I personally look forward to seeing this movie and kind of having my own concrete opinions on this. But uh, thank you so much for, for doing the duty for those of us who are broke <laughs> of going and watching movies. No problem. I'll try to find you a bootleg. Well, I didn't say that. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Brandon. Thank you. Today we have Carl Williams, a civil rights attorney from formerly with the ACLU, now teaching at Cornell University. How are you doing, Carl? Great, good things. Awesome. Well, today we're going to talk about our rights and more broadly, I guess, in the sense of what are your rights? What does rights even mean, and especially to um, a POC community? So. I guess let's just start from the top. What are rights? I think it's funny that you asked me that way because I've, I've always had a little bit of trouble doing, you know, know your rights trainings for folks in our communities, for black and brown folks, because I think we have, it's a word that people use a lot and we have different meanings of it. So I, I think the most basic one, you know, for, for you know, maybe my law students and, and lawyers in general, people think about civil rights. And civil rights in the United States, what we most people mean when they talk about that are rights that flow from, you know, the United States Constitution, specifically from the Bill of Rights. Probably the most familiar one people would be is, you know, uh, some part of the First Amendment, you know, your right to free speech, right? Your right to freedom of religion, um, your right to live in a government that doesn't have a religion is 
two different parts of uh, freedom of religion in there, uh, freedom of the press, um, freedom of expression, freedom of association, all those are packed in the, in the First Amendment. And then for, for specifically for black folks, especially folks in Milwaukee and Chicago and L.A. and Boston and New York and Miami um, and, and all the rest of the, uh, uh, the country, um, Fourth Amendment rights, right? Your right to be free from search and seizure, which sounds real legalistic, but really that's your right to be free from having the cops mess with you you know, without having either some reasonable suspicion or probable cause. So that civil rights stuff is, is the thing that I think we, a lot of people think about. But then there's, you know, a, a broader level than that, right? There's there's the idea of human rights, right? And this is something that's, you know, worldwide. Um, and that is, that sometimes includes things that, that go beyond just those, that narrow definition of, of, um, of civil rights, because sometimes that could, you know, Someone could say you have the right to, you know, a job, you have a right to a minimum income, you have a right to a home, you have a right to ed- education, you have a, more rights than maybe, uh, I'll say, narrowly defined as civil rights. Um, and, um, and then some people, you know, would even it, it would expand it um, in different ways. But then there's, there's actually what happens on the street. You know, so if I, me and you said, hey, man, you have a right not to be, you know, stopped by the police. You, know, you say that to a, you know a young brother in Milwaukee, or you say that to someone in Detroit, or you say that in New York. I mean, usually the response is is a laugh, right? Yeah. To say like, oh yeah, I have a right. Well, what, what does that actually mean in the real world, right? Because that, that's not what happens. And what what the hell am I supposed to do about it? Yeah, I got a right to anyway, get my ass shot. So, so that's my intro on rights. <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. So let's um, let's delve in deeper into like the Fourth Amendment since. You pulled that one out, um, and you brought up the example of okay being pulled over by a cop. Mm-hmm. I feel like I don't have a choice but to listen and do what the fuck the cop says, otherwise I might get shot. But there's more nuances to that, correct? Um, first of all, I just want to clarify a procedural point. Like, okay, we fucking swearing now. Cool. Yeah. Now I can talk real. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to check on that. Um, so, so, um, yeah. So I think this is, this is the other tension that I have. You point all the tensions out, which I like. So the, the tension that I have when I talk to people about their rights is they're like, so what, what am I supposed to do? One of the things that we, I think to, to, to jump back, you know, to our four fathers and our four mothers, probably more importantly, our four mothers, you know, for, for, for black people in this country, for the most of us, not ones that recently immigrated um, to this country, is one of the things that we do as, as black people is we resist, right? We fight back against oppression. We, we, we are experts, probably arguably, you know, the greatest people in history to, uh, to fight against oppression and win, right? So one of the things that when you're stopped by police, right, you can, there's, there's a number of ways you can handle that. And I always explain that to, to folks as there's a dial, right? And you can put that dial on zero or you can put that dial on 10, right? And, and, you know, many of our ancestors did, you know, when they were faced with oppression, they said, look, I'm not going to put up with this, right? You know, I'm thinking of people like, you know, Harry Tubman and Sojourner Truth and, and a lot of other folks who, who, if it weren't for them, we would, we wouldn't actually exist. We wouldn't be here today. Right. Um, so, so when you're pulled over by the police, you have the right to remain silent, right? You don't have to, when they say, where are you coming from? Where are you going? Whose car is this? You know, which one of those questions do we have to answer? 
The answer to that question is very easy. None of them. You don't have to answer any of those questions. If you're driving a car, you need to show the person that you can legitimately drive a car, right? Mm -hmm. That requires two things. It requires a registration. It requires a license, right? Sometimes this proof of insurance is different in different states, but basically you need to give the, 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 uh, the cop your registration and your license. Um, and, uh, I have, a, a, have a, an identical twin brother who's also a lawyer. His practice is to not say anything, to literally not say words, right. to just give the license and registration. And he's frequently been asked, like he, he was in Miami and he was pulled over for, for no reason, I'll add. Um, and, and the police officer said, do you speak English? And he just nodded his head. And the police officer was really confused. He's like, what? like this kid isn't, this guy isn't saying a word to me. He's just giving me these things, but you're not required to. You don't have to. And one of the things is I think a lot of people think they can sort of supplicate or they can appease the police by answering questions. The reason the police officer is asking you questions is not because she thinks you won the lottery and, you know, they're here to deliver your $5 million. They're not trying to say like, oh, you know, I'm going to help you with directions because, you know, you seem to be lost in our town or I'm going to give you an escort because you seem to be in a hurry and you need to get somewhere quickly. So let me help you out with that. They're doing it to trap you. They're doing it to, you know, my grandfather used to say confuzzle, to confuzzle you and mess you up, to have you say, oh, I'm going home. And then you say, oh, no, I'm just stopping by the drive-thru. And they're like, well, you said two different things. Why do you say two different things? What are you doing in this neighborhood? You know, they sell drugs in this neighborhood. And that's going to get the police officer more interested in you are a lawbreaker, you are a criminal, which is probably the reason they pulled you over and has a lot to do with, you know, the, the, the economic state that they believe we're in and the, and the, and the, and the race that we, they believe we're in. So I think one of the things is answering questions isn't going to alleviate suspicion 99% of the time. It is going to add to suspicion. Right. Because if you say, you know, if you a brother or your sister or a person of another gender and you're driving that, you know, that big fancy whip. And they don't think you should be driving that big fancy whip. And they say, whose car is this? And you're like, it's my car. Right? Now they're like, well, sure it is. I want to see the registration. And maybe the registration's in your wife's name, your husband's name, or your mom's name. And they're like, you said it was your car. How come? And now, now they're thinking, you know, maybe your last name doesn't match your, you know, your spouse's last name. And now they're thinking it's stolen. And so those things, I think we think if we just play that, I'll say respectability politics, like I'll answer all this officer's questions I'll have very soft eyes and it's hard to me, for me to get around it. It's like, you know, that step and fetch it. Like I'm going to be nice and just do everything this person says. And that will protect me. That doesn't protect us. You know, that doesn't protect us. And I think, you know, if you look at people like, um, the brother Philando Castillo, I mean, he did everything he was supposed to do. He literally did every single thing he was supposed to do. Right. Had a legit firearm, you know, volunteer in the community, worked in a local school, said, you know, I have this, you know, this thing just so you know, was cautious about his interactions. And that ended, you know, he ended up murdered because of that. And I say murdered because to me, that's what happened there. He wasn't just he didn't die. He wasn't just killed. He was intentionally killed in an illegal way. So to me, as a lawyer, that's a murder. Yeah. And one thing I will even say, and this is something that my father used to always um, emphasize, is, all right, keep your hands on the wheels. Keep your hands on yeah, the wheels. And, I think, and he had that. I, I think there are, there are those things. It's like there's things that are, you know, present 
So I'm just going to use an analogy of black men. Uh, you might not want to be Easy E in a situation. You might want to be Chuck D, right? Or you might want to be Sister Soldier, right? You don't want to be like, what are you even doing? I'm going to, and you start reaching under the seat and you're putting your hands in a backpack. That's probably not the best move. But to say firmly and strongly, like, I did, you know, like, here's my license, here's my registration. On the advice of my lawyer or in the advice that I heard on a podcast, I have nothing to say to you. I'm not going to answer any questions. Because, you know, a frequent question, I'll just say this is a little trap. You know, police officers pull someone over on the highway and they say, do you know how fast you were going? I'll tell you, that's a trick question. No. Any, no matter what way, you say, yeah, I was going 55 and the cop knows you weren't, that's a bad answer because they're going to write down that you lied. If you say, oh, yeah, I was going 87 miles an hour, they're like, okay, you admit that to 87 miles an hour, you're going to get a $400 ticket. Or if you say, oh, no, I was going um, – I don't know how fast I was going. That seems like maybe it's a good answer. Then later when you go into court and try to fight it and you say, oh, you know, I wasn't speeding judge. The cop is going to say, no, when I pulled him over, he said he didn't know how fast. So I don't know how he knows now. So that's just an example of almost anything you say is probably going to get you in more trouble than, than or raise more suspicion than, than less. So, you know, one of the things I say to people is you should always, you know, try to be brief in that encounter because what you want to do is, I would think is end the encounter as quickly as possible, right? Yeah. Um, the other thing that you probably want to do is not um, is not cons- not agree to any kind of a search, right? Because a lot of times the police officer will say, "Can you step out of the car so I can search it?" That's a really slick, very time tested police thing to do. And what they're doing is they're getting your your uh, non verbal consent to search your car. So, like, imagine if a, just let's do, take this to a house because I think in a house situation people would be more protective of their house. Hmm. So, if the police knocked on your door and you open the door and you see a police officer, you see three police officers standing there in like SWAT uniforms, and they look like you know they got the battering ram and stuff, and they say, "Can you please step out of the way so that we can search your house?" I think most people in that situation would be like, "Wait a minute, do you have a search warrant?" Right? Yeah. And I'll say, when you're in your car, you should think exactly the same thing. You should be like, wait a minute, do you have a search warrant, you know, dot, 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 or other reason why you can, you know, force me to search my car, right? And if you're just getting pulled over for speeding or they believe you're speeding or you're getting pulled over for going to a stop sign or you didn't use your blinker or you're, you know, because black people see, don't seem to know how to drive because we weave, we weave on the road all the time. I'm making that in, in quotey marks for yeah. folks listening to the podcast. It's, you know, like they just say, oh, you, you, you're not driving straight. And you're like, oh, okay. You just wanted to pull me over. So I think one of the things that folks should do is, you know, pretend that's the door to your house when they're like, when they say, I want to search the car, you should say, do you have a search warrant? I don't, I don't consent to this. And one of the things I say is you should verbally refuse any kind of a search, any kind of um, detention of yourself. Like if they're keeping you there, you should say, I want to leave. Can I leave? Or you should, and or you should say, you know, if they say I want to look in the glove compartment, or I want, can you open the trunk? You say I don't know, I don't want to let you open. The, I, I, I'm not letting you search. I don't consent to this. If they say open the trunk right now, I'm demanding it, and you know the officer reaches for his gun. You might want to say, okay, well, I'm going to do that. Mm-hmm. But you can also be very clear that you're not agreeing to it. You say, look, I'm not agreeing to this. I'm doing it because you're telling me to. 
Right. And I think that's a way to like skirt the line a little bit, you know, and this happened to me, like one of the first times I drove um, to upstate New York, I got pulled over by an officer. He, he told me to get out of the car. I said, there's no reason for me to get out of the car. He was irate about this. He got really upset. And I said, I don't need to get out of the car. There's no reason for me to get out of the car. You're, you know, if you want to give me a ticket, you give me a ticket. There's no, you're not going to search the car and find evidence of me speeding. Like that doesn't make any sense. But he said, get out of the car right now. And I said, look, I don't consent to this. I don't agree. And it was a really young, very aggressive New York State trooper. And I, I just felt like just to and we're in the middle of nowhere. And I was like, I don't really want to get out of this car. I don't really want to get into all this. But the way he was behaving, I preserved my rights by saying, look, I don't agree to this. I'm not, I'm not agreeing to any of this. And then I said, but you're, you're telling me and you're I didn't want to say he was being aggressive. But then I got out of the car. Yeah, you don't want to say that he's being aggressive. That that just seems like a bad move. Yeah, yeah, but, but I, I sort of—I mean, I was resolute with him. I said, "Look, you—I said what you're doing right now is violating the law. You know, the thing that you're doing is—I said the thing that you're doing is illegal." And then he he frisked me, and I said, I, "I saw him about to frisk me, and I said, if you put your hands on me, you're breaking the law." And I said it, you know, just like this. I said, "If you put your hands on me, you are breaking the law. You have no right to touch me." And he's like, "Put your hands on the car." And, you know, made me put me in a frisk position and then did frisk me and, you know, emptied my pockets. And I said, you're and then he put handcuffs on me. I said, you're breaking the law again. This is against the law. So what happened? Um, he cuffed me for a while. It was there was I had borrowed someone's car. So, like, he didn't like the situation. So I was in upstate New York. I was in kind of a borrowed my friend's Rick, Rick's car it was a little bit of a beater car. And there was a bunch of like junk in the back, like it was like a, a hatchback and there was a bunch of stuff in there. And the cop was like, and I was in the car with um, someone else who was of a different race. And he's just like, this, this seems like illegal. Something illegal is happening here. And he really wanted to search the car. And I, I told him, I said, you're not going in the car. You're not searching the car. I said, you're not. And he took me out, handcuffed me and then said, you know, I want you to open, you know, like I want to search the car. And then they tried to, to stress my uh, the the person in the car with me my friend they tried to stress him they said get out of the car so we can search and he had listened to my know your right stuff and he said no you need a search warrant for that and then the cop was like oh you're right he said you're right we do and then walked away and didn't search the car wow so and and then i'll just say later we filed an internal affairs complaint against the officer i went and fought the ticket and we I think one of the other things that I think is important about this is if we, you know, I'll say the older brothers and older sisters who are in like a little bit of positions of economic power, educational privilege, um, maybe you live in that neighborhood where they're not, you know, stressed, you know, you're not in the projects. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit up to us to sort of create that precedent. And that is to like resist, refuse, not com- not comply with the police because then when it happens to you know like that 14 year old you know you know like trans kid in in the projects that kid's not going to get you know the cop is going to say you know when that kid says i'm not you can't search me it might be the third time you know because maybe right before they stopped you and you were you just refused and they stopped me and i refused and now they stop this person who's incredibly like you know um uh likely to be the subject of, of police repression and societal repression and they just let and they say no 
Whereas before that cop might have, you know, grabbed the person and slammed them down to the ground and said, you do what I say. But now the cop is like, man, all these people recording me, they're like stressing me, they're always refusing. And, and I think the more that we refuse, and for white allies to do that too, to be like, no, I ain't answering any questions. No, I'm not your friend. It, it really, I'll just say it drives me crazy when people, you know, I, I recently talked to someone who had an astonishing amount of white privilege and they, they were playing the like, oh, I just acted cute and I talked my way out of a ticket. I was like, sister, you didn't talk your way out of a ticket. You whited your way out of a ticket. That's what you did. And if you feel good about whiting your way out of a ticket, we need to have a conversation. Right. We need to have a conversation. When you get pulled over by the police, you should say, no, I'm not your friend. I'm not smiling at you. I'm not being cute. I'm not batting my eyes. I, because that's selling out, you know, all the rest of the sisters. Because, you know, if you don't like have some kind of, you know, use your gender in this way, you know, sexualized uh, way to, to, you know, it's like feed that heteropatriarchy to try to, you know, get yourself out of a ticket. And, you know, if you, that, was a, that was a black woman, you ain't getting out of a ticket that way. If you're a black woman, 99% of the time. Yeah. Not at all. So you made me think of something. Occasionally, I went through this phase of um, watching YouTube videos in which there was usually some angry white guy being recorded talking to a cop or a state trooper, and they used the magic words, am I being, arrest- am I being detained or am I free to go? Does that actually yes. work? So I think there's – I would suggest that people use that if they feel comfortable. I would suggest you do all these things if you feel comfortable. If you don't, sometimes, you know, like there was a situation in Boston where Boston police who have murdered black people in the city of Boston, you know, they came up to, it was a Cape Verdean neighborhood. Um, There are a lot of Cape Verdean, Cape Verde is a, a, you know, uh, immigrant immigrant, uh, country uh, off the West coast of Africa. A lot of uh, Cape Verdean immigrants um, and and now U.S. citizens are, are in Boston. And they, the police ended up murdering a young Cape Verdean man. This is a number of years, about, about 10 years ago. Um, you know, if I was in that community and I was young and these police came up and they started yelling at me and it was the same cop who I saw shoot somebody, you know, I might behave differently. I might be like, all right, I'm just going to do what this dude says because I'm terrified, right? Because that happened. So, so I think um, what white folks can do and what, what people of color, specifically black folks can do and immigrants can do is different. And I think um, if people feel comfortable, one of the things, a lot of times people say, I know my rights and please usually laugh at that. But if you say, am I free to go or are you detaining me? That tells a cop that you're probably someone who might file an internal affairs complaint. So I think asking, you know, can I leave? A lot of times, you know, like I've seen people go into police stations for questioning and the police say, you know, you're here voluntarily. You can leave when you want. And people stay. And and I look at the video. I'm like, why is this person staying in this room? Like, for what reason? Um, So I think that the the magic words that we tell people is, am I free to go? Um, I choose to remain silent or, you know, on the advice of my attorney, I want to remain silent or I, you know, I, I on the Fifth Amendment. I'm going to stay. I don't want to answer questions. Something to the effect that I ain't, I'm not answering your questions. Um, so am I free to leave? I choose to remain silent. And um, 
the last one is I don't consent to any search like of my car, my trunk, my person, my house, whatever. Um, those are the three, like if you keep those in your sort of, you know, rights packet, those are, are probably the most useful things you can, you can say. Cause police will try to trick you into agreeing to, to those things like to, to questioning, to, you know, to detaining you for a while. Right. Or, and to, um, to, uh, to searching, you know, your body, your car, your trunk, your backpack, your house, even. Wow. Well, thank you for summarizing that up. Um, the three things that you need to keep in mind because, uh, it could be your life in a situation. Uh, one thing I will add, and I think just be aware of whenever you see someone in a, with a badge or have um, that position of authority, um, don't let that punk you. Just because right. they have a badge doesn't mean that they, you have to automatically obey to whatever they say. No, I think that's exactly exactly right. And one of the things I saw this in New York, and I cannot tell you how much it. it I mean, you know, when when people say "my people, my people," we're so, I think, afraid, rightfully afraid, of the police, especially in you know larger you know metropolitan areas. I saw these folks. They, I was in Brooklyn. These folks were getting run down, like just run down by these New York cops, right? Two black guys, you know, they look like low working class, you know, like, you know, trying to get their struggle on through a gentr- in a gentrified Brooklyn. And these cops were like searching them, harassing them, like asking them all types of questions, had them like, you know, you know, like just posted up like on a, on a bench and were like looming over them. And I started walking real, real, real slow, kind of looping around and watching the interaction. And then the cops were like, all right, all right, you know, and then they started getting like that New York, like Long Island, Long Island or Staten Island guy, like palsy with them, like, you know what, back slapping these two brothers and be like, you know what, it's all right. It's good to see you around here. You live in the neighborhood. All right, we'll see you around. It's good to know. And, and then the guys were like, yeah, we're not like them. And they had these very like doe eyes, soft, large eyes. Like, you know, we're not like that. You know, we work every day. We're not like you know, everyone else over here and selling out, you know, our, our, our brothers and sisters and other folks because they're like, okay, now the cops can let me go. Now, now I'll be nice to him. I'm like, this guy just searched you for like a half an hour for zero reason, for zero reason. But the police have like sculpted this thing like, oh, you won the lottery because I'm not going to arrest you now. You know what I mean? Whether yeah. And sometimes, you know, you find like a bag of weed on somebody and they're like, oh, I'm not going to arrest you. You're like, this shit shouldn't be illegal anyway. You're not doing me a favor by not arresting me. Um, and I think we need to, you know, uh, as I said, our mothers and, uh, you know, father, our, our ancestors showed more resistance than that. And I think we, we don't need to be afraid, right? Because if they're going to do those things, they're going to do them anyway. And, and many times I've run the analogy of, it, it's like a schoolyard bully, right? And in, in a micro sense, it's like, if you let the schoolyard bully continue to get away with things, they're more likely to do more bad things, not less. Yeah. I think that's a really good statement to leave us on on this one. The schoolyard bully will do more damage if you don't resist. 
Exactly. And I'll say the other, I'll just add the other piece. It's, it's not just individual resistance. And, you know, I take this from the Malcolm X grassroots movement organizers and cop watchers in New York is we need to resist and we need to organize. You can't do, you need to do both of those things, right? Cause if it's just you, they can get you. But, but if you have a community around you, if you're walking down the block and you know, your people in your community are videotaping, are challenging police, are going to stand up with you, then you solid. Or if you know that video that you got, you know, you're going to put it on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, and you know, 20,000 people are going to be like, damn, who's that cop? That's going to be powerful. And we see that. We see that in the Me Too movement. We see that in the Black Lives Matter movement. We see that in the, you know, the movement for immigrant justice in this country, um, for trans rights, for people standing up. And um, one of the things I say is we, we have more in ways people might be discouraged about the politics that are happening right now, but we have seen more people get up and stand up and resist in the last two years than maybe has ever happened in the United States. Wow. All right. Well, with that, Carl, thank you for your time. And we'll be hearing from you soon. Thanks a lot. I want to break free. break free from capitalism well folks this is the end of another episode uh before i let you go i want to remind you to follow us on twitter at movement underscore color and support us at patreon.com backslash movement of color so we can break free from the capitalist system anyway my name is brandon peyton carrillo uh, have a wonderful week the movement of color